Hello, everyone. I'm Lauren Foster. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. Every week, we bring you an unbiased lens on investing in capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today on the show, emerging markets. Now, I have to admit to feeling a touch of nostalgia while we recorded this one. As some of you know, I was born and raised in an emerging market, South Africa, and my first job as a reporter in New York was covering U.S. foreign exchange and then emerging markets. That was during the heyday of the Asian financial crisis, the Russian devaluation, and the Brazil currency crisis. My guest is Dr. Dirk Villa, a managing director and global head of emerging market strategy at Citi in New York. He is also the author of the recently released book, Trading Fixed Income and FX in Emerging Markets, A Practitioner's Guide. Dirk holds a PhD and MSc in Economics from the London School of Economics. We hopscotch around the globe. Along the way, Dirk discusses to what extent emerging markets are winners in the post-COVID world, peak exceptionalism in China, and rising inflation. He also gives listeners a short primer on the section on foreign exchange in the book. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Dirk Villa, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation and uh, we're having it at the end of January and I was doing a little bit of you know, research ahead of our, our call today and there's been a lot of news in the headlines about emerging markets. And I just want to give the listeners a little bit of context. One of the headlines that I'd seen in the Financial Times was that emerging markets had attracted $17 billion of inflows just in the first three weeks of 2021 and that was on a pretty strong ending last year. I also saw another story that talked about the emerging market borrowing, and I'm going to use the quotation marks here, boom. Uh, one commentator uh, said the issuance of emerging market debt has been a, his words, tsunami. So help set the context here. Not all of our listeners are following emerging markets on a day-to-day -day basis. What's been going on in emerging markets? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really very interesting. But uh, in, in some sense, emerging markets are seen as the winners in this post-COVID world. And the reason is, of course, that the time when you're supposed to be long emerging markets is when global growth is going up and, and it's, of course, recovering sharply or hopefully recovering sharply in the rest of this year when global trade is coming back. Um, and, uh, and so there's a big interest in emerging markets. But on top of that, uh, it's more than just the normal interest at this stage of the business cycle because on top of the growth outlook, we also have uh, the dollar, who, which has been strengthening since 2011, really, and uh, now might be peaking, and we, we are looking for a weaker dollar environment going forward. And in these situations, interest in emerging markets and non-dollar-denominated investments always rises tremendously, and that's some of what we've seen uh, late last year as well. And, and maybe one last point, which I think also is a bit more structural than just the normal business cycle interest in emerging markets, is, of course, uh, China and the fact that China has now been or is being included in a lot of the developed market indices, and, and both on the fixed income side and on the equity side. And that leads to a situation where I think investors who traditionally maybe had mainly a developed market focus would be forced to deal with emerging markets more and more especially with China, of course, 
but it could easily broaden out to uh, to having emerging markets uh, as a more substantial part of, of your average portfolio. So you head up a, a global sort of emerging markets team. You've got analysts and researchers across the globe. Um, how many countries are sort of in your purview in terms of emerging markets? I would say of the more important countries that we cover really on a daily basis, it's uh, probably between seven and ten per region, so in Latin America, Tanzania, and then in emerging Asia. And then there's, of course, Africa, which is just coming on stream as a more mainstream market, which right now is still uh, much less liquid. And then, so that's more an additional specialty that we're covering that's not in the indices yet uh, to a broad extent, that is, but at some stages, so that's on top of those. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the themes that uh, you are talking about to clients and in your research reports. You know, here in the US, there's a lot of coverage about the vaccine rollout. And so one, I presume one of the big themes that you must be thinking about is what you know, impact that has in emerging markets and which countries are poised to do well in terms of a post-COVID uh, vaccine rollout. Yeah, you're quite right. Well, that's indeed the single most important question uh, investors are trying to grapple with. And it, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, um, as I mentioned, the emerging markets are seen as a key beneficiary, and that is because growth is meant to bounce back so strongly and so forth. But on the other hand, they are, of course, not at the forefront of the vaccination in many cases. Right? So they are, maybe not in Asia, but certainly in Samia and Latam, they are several months, if not uh, quarters, behind in the vaccination process. And at the same time, they, of course, build up tremendous deficits during the crisis. And while developed markets have done the same, it, it's very different for a country like Brazil to build up a lot of debt and for the U.S. to build up a lot of debt, because the U.S. still has the Fed and uh, is a reserve currency. And so there is um, a way to monetize the debt without too much going wrong. In emerging markets, that is usually not a path you can go down too far. And so in some sense, you could argue that maybe emerging markets will not be the key beneficiary. But but we are really quite positive for this year about emerging markets. And, and, uh, and I think growth will heal a lot of the wounds. And, uh, and I think, yes, it's true, maybe the market has to wait a few months longer for vaccination progress in emerging markets than in the developed markets. But I think the markets can wait and will look through the valley and will trade emerging markets from the bullish side. And so we, we, we are quite positive on the asset class, especially on, um, on the FX part, but also on the credit part of the equation. Um, you were asking which countries maybe are best positioned. And what what tends to happen at this part of the business cycle is that the commodity currencies usually outperform, right? Because the main channel, how the better global environment is translated into local fundamentals, often goes through the commodity channel, especially for Latin America. So the countries that will benefit the most from this recovery and the global healing that we are seeing um, should really be the commodity producers in Latin America. Um, and in Semia, so that would be your, you know, your Colombia, your Chiles, your Russia's, your South Africa's. So there are a fair number of countries that are well positioned for a strong rebound of growth um, on the global scene. 
How concerned are you uh, about South Africa in particular? There's been a lot of news here about the, the variant that is coming out of South Africa. Are you still optimistic that it will emerge uh, on the positive side of this? I mean, South Africa is actually one of the cases that um, is a little bit more troublesome than the average country in emerging markets, partly because the debt load um, has increased uh, quite tremendously. Brazil and South Africa, in some sense, the two countries where people are most concerned with the debt loads. But um, as you point out, at the same time, the vaccination prospects and the, the development um, of the virus are also maybe more negative in South Africa than in, in many other countries. Now, what's usually happening is that if you trade emerging markets, 65% of the performance is driven by global factors, and maybe only 35 or around that area is driven by local factors. So if we are right that overall emerging markets will have a good year, then maybe the South African rent could, um, could underperform the asset class, but it will not sell off. It's basically, the, I think, the, the, the tailwind that EMFX overall will provide will be enough even for a country like South Africa, which in theory um, has maybe more concerns on the debt or on the vaccination side than some of its peers. So I'm sure one area that you and your team are looking at very closely is China. Um, and again, I saw a headline that it was the only major economy to report economic growth for 2020. So clearly, uh, despite the raging virus last year, China was had a fairly exceptional year. So what are you and your team uh, thinking about China this year? Yes, you're quite right. You cannot have a discussion about emerging markets about China. It's clearly um, after the US is the most important driver for the whole asset class. And, and so it's really important to get China right. Now, as you said, uh, so China um, was very exceptional last year, and that's the only large economy that had a positive growth rate. And that, that, even more importantly, maybe, was done even without slashing interest rates to zero and without having um, these large fiscal expansions that you see in most other countries. They did issue a lot of credit, so it's not that they did nothing, but they did less than um, other countries, and in spite of that, performed better. And one reason is, of course, that the management of the healthcare crisis was done in a much more efficient way than in many other countries. And maybe it's you know, unfair to blame other countries because not everyone can manage it like China, but still, the, the outcome was, of course, a, a pretty strong one. And, and going forward, the interesting question is, can this uh, China exceptionalism continue, if you like? And on the margin, we don't think it will. And, and of course, partly what happened is that China gained a lot of market share in global manufacturing from other countries who closed down when China did not close down. And part of that market share, China will give back again uh, to the other countries. So. So yes, China has seen what we call peak exceptionalism in the sense that it will look much more like other countries this year than last year. Thank God for that, actually. Um, but it's unlikely to be a source of outright weakness. It will, it will just um, I mean, not, not grow as much, partly because the stimulus, the credit stimulus that I mentioned, will be dialed back uh, this year. 
and uh, and policymakers in China and the PBOC already signaled that. And so we cannot expect that they uh, keep extending as much credit as last year. So China will slow down, but it, it will be it will not be negative for the rest of the asset class because part of the slowdown will be other emerging markets regaining some of the market share that they lost to China. Um, just a quick sidebar for listeners, we should point out that the Communist Party of China will commemorate its 100th anniversary in July. So what, what impact will that have uh, on China this year? That's a very good point. Um, yeah, China takes these type of anniversaries very seriously, and it uh, and they are not as serious as you think, right? Sometimes you have the party anniversary, then you have the founding um, of the state, and so there, there are various anniversaries uh, that seem to crop uh, crop up, and so we actually have a good data set to study, and uh, it it does strongly suggest that uh, China is very keen on not slowing down much into these events. So the fact that this really big day for China is coming up um, also means, yes, they might not push out as much credit as last year, but they will certainly make sure that the economy will be in good shape. And, and, and that, that's another good argument for not being too negative on Chinese growth and um, on the that would have otherwise on, on emerging markets globally. So when we were chatting off, Mike, you had mentioned that the renminbi is not one of your preferred currencies uh, for this year. And I'm wondering which currencies are? Yeah, um, and just because China is not as exceptional anymore this event last year, it wouldn't be our very preferred pick. Having said that, we still think it will appreciate and do well. It will just not give you the biggest bang for your buck, if you like. Um, but it, it remains a good story, and especially the Chinese bond market, as I say, remains a compelling story because it's very, very hard to find positive real interest rates in a large market um, on the fixed income side, and there the CGB still screen extremely well. Um, so, and, and on the so on the bond side, I think um, it's a very good trade. On the X side, we don't think that's wrong with it. Probably continue to appreciate, but yes, I think if you um, if you were to go again in the cheap commodity currencies in Latin America, most likely they will outperform something like the renminbi um, in this uh, reopening enthusiasm and and then global growth and global trade surges back. So we would favor Latin over over Asia in that context. Okay. So just to give listeners a bit of perspective as well, you started your career really as a Russia guy. Um, tell us just a little bit about how you ended up covering Russia at that stage of your career. Um, yeah, I, um, I was sent actually, uh, for, I studied for a, um, a PhD at the LSE in London. And my my professor sent me in the 90s, that is, and to Russia to um, help his project of consulting the Russian government. And I mean, these days it seems, you know, somewhat bizarre to send a PhD student um, to opine on various policy options uh, in Russia. But uh, at the time, it was um, it was great. So um, there was a lot of goodwill on on both sides, and. Um, I think uh, to to bring some of the Western type of approaches to Russia was helpful to the Russians, but certainly I probably learned a lot more from uh, from the Russians than they learned from me. But it was really a, a great project 
to uh, to work at one of the most fascinating economic questions of the time, and um, treasure the time really, and, um, and and that was really really extremely educational. So we're going to do a bit of sort of globe trotting at the moment. We've sort of touched on China, a little bit on Russia. Um, one thing we had also talked about a little bit is one of the themes for this year is the potential of inflation in emerging markets. Um, and I believe Brazil is something that you're looking at quite closely in terms of, of inflation. Tell us what's happening there. Yeah, there is a global debate if you get inflation or not, right? Um, and I think it's a hotly fought debate in in developed markets, but in emerging markets, I think the argument for inflation is stronger than it is in developed markets. And we might get inflation also in developed markets, but in emerging markets, we are quite likely to get it. And the reason is that in emerging markets, energy and food prices are much more important in the CPI index than it is in almost all of the developed markets. And of course, you've seen a tremendous rally in oil in soy, in some of the other soft commodities, and all that gets um, basically shows up in the CPI numbers of emerging markets very fast. On top of that, of course, you've seen a lot of currency weakness last year, and there's some lag effects, and that is impacting inflation as well. And, and Brazil, as you pointed out, is actually one of them where it's already uh, showing up fairly clearly. And then so Brazil will probably be the first central bank um, that uh, in, in that time that will start a hiking cycle, and uh, so, so some central banks will be forced to react. I mean, I think in and that's a big difference to developed markets where even if there's some inflation shows up, uh, the Fed has a strong incentive to look through the inflation numbers. In in Brazil, the central bank cannot afford to look through the inflation numbers, and so we will get a hiking cycle uh, very likely. And there come some other emerging markets too where you see some inflation pressures showing up. And so that is a, a big theme because it means that the single best trade last year, which was receiving interest rates in emerging markets, will not be the best trade this year. This year, you are much more supposed to be in a currency which can benefit from rate hikes. And you are, uh, you are meant to be in uh, real rate uh, bonds, maybe that are linked to inflation, so the equivalent of the U.S. tips um, that uh, would perform as inflation moves up. And these receivers of nominal rates and the bond purchase of last year will just not perform to the same extent. So overall, you know, you and your team are bullish on emerging markets this year. What would be your sort of your standout picks in terms of the countries you're most optimistic about? And then on the flip side, the countries that you are most cautious about? Yeah. So from an asset class perspective, as I mentioned, it would be the high yield credit um, that we that we like the most and that uh, can be countries in Africa or it can be uh, parts in, in Latin. Um, in the FX space, as the other asset class that is quite like, as I mentioned, it's, it's mostly about cheap commodity currencies that should benefit the most. And uh, again, so it is your, uh, it is your, your, your Russia, your South Africa, your Colombia, your Chile, and so forth. So whenever the market moves back into trading the vaccine trade, all those should should benefit the Australian. And then on the on the cautious side, I would say so. Rates might not have the best in emerging markets, partially because U.S. interest rates are, of course, likely to rise, in our view, further from here. 
And so that's the asset class that we're most cautious about. In terms of countries, um, it's a little bit harder to say because, as I said, I mean, the, the global factors drive 65% of the performance. So it's unlikely that uh, that uh, a country will, or a currency will fall completely apart in the context of pretty strong tailwinds. But um, certainly, I mean, if there is a risk case, certainly Brazil has a big fiscal problem that they have to fix. If they don't fix it, um, that would certainly be a negative outcome that the market would punish. And um, South Africa is also a big fiscal problem, but they're not as close to the fiscal Rubicon as Brazil. So maybe Brazil will be the most binary, and we are hoping that they do the right thing, but it's not guaranteed. So you've been helping sort of to lay out the case for emerging markets. But last year, you released a book that uh, you call, I guess, The Recipe of How to Do It. And the book that you co-authored is Trading, Fixed Income and FX in Emerging Markets, A Practitioner's Guide. And that came out, I guess, just in September of 2020. Um, and I should just mention a quick sidebar to, to listeners. Some of the endorsements that I read about the book, um, one called it a, a must-read book, another a required reading for both novices and emerging markets experts. And one of the reviews that I read in, in Euromoney called it a dense but readable mix of theory and strategy. <laughs> so tell us what prompted you to write the book. Uh, yeah, I think um, if I had known how much work it would be, maybe it wouldn't have been written. But uh, the, originally it came from the idea that, that I do think markets rhyme and, and so the similar questions come up um, over and over again. And um, what actually happens is that uh, partially my, my memory is not that great, but partially my filing system is not that great either. And so I, I had to reinvent the wheel a couple of times when, when similar questions came up. So um, I thought it might be a well-worth effort to put everything together in one place. And it, um, it it has worked actually uh, quite well. So I, I had I brought in two co-authors just because it was a, a bigger undertaking than envisioned. And um, I think between the three of us, we, we covered the topics that, that do repeat most frequently. So I think it's hopeful to our readers. So it sounds like it's a, a nice bridge between sort of theory and practice. And uh you lay out, I think, three separate asset classes, FX, interest rates, and emerging market credit. Is that right? That's the sort of the structure of the book. So perhaps just for, for the purposes of our listeners today, maybe we can delve a little bit into sort of the, the FX portion. Um, give us some sort of practical um, sort of examples of what you do in that chapter or that section. Yeah. Yes, you're right. I mean, FX is actually the most uh, topical classes right now. And what the book does is it does a lot of data work and backtesting of rules of thumb, if you like. And, and some of the rules that we found to be consistently profitable are applicable right now to the FX market. One is, for example, that um, of all the quantitative factors you can trade in FX, the single most consistently profitable one is a growth factor. But there are, there are many ways how you could think about implementing it. And the best implementation that we found is actually to use Citi's economic surprise index for emerging markets and, um, and, and use basically that index uh, when a certain threshold of economic surprises are met, that is a big bullish signal to be long EMFX. And of course, that 
that is right now, for example, strongly positive territory suggesting that uh, EMFX uh, could trade quite well. And the, the, there are other rules that are quite helpful that right now also contribute to the bullish view on EMFX. Um, one is, for example, uh, you call it the breadth factor, where we measure the breadth of the market, i.e. how many currencies go up at a given time for how long. So it's, it's a bit more on the technical analysis side, but we have some of that as well. And then our favorite risk indicator, um, which we use to get us out of any EM risk, uh, if need be, is an indicator that is looking at um, the implied volatilities of various global asset markets. And I think our innovation in that indicator is that we look at the maximum rise in volatility because most people just add it together into one indicator. And I think it works a lot better if you look at, uh, at the maximum because really EMFX is afraid of its own shadow. If anything breaks anywhere in the world, EMFX uh, is in trouble. So therefore, uh, that's an important way to look at it. And, and it, it was quite interesting because in the last couple of months, there were two big events in the U.S. Treasury market where, where rates spiked higher. One was when the Pfizer vaccine came out, and one was after the election in Georgia. And so in both cases, we thought to ourselves, okay, um, quickly rising interest rates are probably not a good thing for emerging markets, and so how worried do we have to be? Uh, but it turns out that the implied volatility of the Treasury market never shot up very much in either case, just in spite of the big underlying moves. And so our warning signal never triggered. And so we were quite happy sitting with long EM positions through those events, uh, so, uh, which, which turned out to be useful. Uh, and, and so I, I think the, 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 the advantage of the book is really, I mean, a lot of the rules might be something that if you have been working EM for a long time, you, you, you get the basic gist of it. But if someone backtested it and proves to you, yes, trust it, go, go ahead with it, I think that is quite useful even to seasoned practitioners. So how much of the book was written pre-COVID and how much during uh, the pandemic? And if there was a lot during the pandemic, did you have to go back and revise anything or did it change your thinking on, on anything you'd written? A very good question. I mean, un somewhat unbelievably, the whole book was done by the end of uh, 2019 and some chapters even end of 2018. And then it w was a lot of um, back and forth with, edits and uh, and so forth. And so um, it came out only in September, as you were saying, but it was finished before COVID broke out. And which and we thought, you know, what, maybe should we add a chapter or should we revise some of the chapters after COVID broke? And we decided against it. And the reason that we decided against it is that it's a great out-of-sample test for our framework. Right. Um, and because it turns out, actually, that both of the rules did extremely well in the COVID environment. So we came to the conclusion, A, we don't have to write it much, and B, not rewriting it illustrates to the reader how it would have been useful in 2020. And so we left it as is. Um, and, and I would say the, the main, I, I would say the rules for which we have enough data in 2008, in the sample, all those rules survived extremely well. We have a few rules where we only had data starting in 2010, 2011 to backtest. 
And those rules, as you can imagine, if you don't have 2008 in your sample period, some of them survived it, some of them didn't. Um, but uh, broadly speaking, we're very pleased with how well the, the rules, um, or how useful the rules were in the COVID environment. Great. So our last few minutes, I'd love to ask you what I uh, ask of standard closing questions that I ask all of our guests. Uh, and listeners will know that I started out last year with one question, and then by the end of the year, I'd added one more. And then this year, I thought, well, I'm going to add one more question. And so there's sort of three kind of questions I'm now posing to, to everyone. So are you ready to play? <laughs> it feels like we're on a game show. So the first question is what I just called the ray of sunshine question. And we just try to end uh, the conversation looking at something positive. And so just uh, what sort of one uh, positive long-term change uh, that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously bullish in the markets right now. I see many sunshine, many rays of sunshine. <laughs> but I, I think it's actually, and the major positive is that we learned how to deal with the pandemic, right? And we learned how to, uh, that we have to share global information really early on and have to be transparent. And we learned how to create a vaccine in six months' time, um, more or less. Uh, we learned how to how to change behaviors and what technology to use to live through a pandemic. Right now, we are learning how to distribute a, a vaccine, which you know is also not easy. Right, so I, I feel there's so many lessons that will be so important for whenever the next pandemic hits, hopefully, you know, in a hundred years time. But um, it will hit, and we learn so much. So I think that is um, a great ray of sunshine. So hopefully, it will be a very very useful lesson. I think. I hope so. So the second question is the what I call the NASA question, and it came from a, a NASA education module for middle schoolers, uh, in which it asks students to think they're about to go on a you know a long duration space flight, and they can only take one object with them. What is that object, and why that particular object? Oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> And we've had a whole uh, yeah. range of answers, uh, piano, Kindle, all, all sorts of things. Photographs, yeah, no, I fluffies. Thinking, I was just thinking of those lines because I guess the idea would be to to learn as much as you can, right? Both in terms of, I guess, creating wisdom insights and or to improve skills. So if I could take two things, I would say, yes, I need some way to pack 600 books into one little digital device. That would certainly be great. And on the skill side, I would love to take my guitar, even though I think no matter how much time I have, I'm not sure I'll ever be a great guitar player, but I, I would love to try. I think a guitar is a, an excellent choice. And on that note, we'll have to leave it there, Dirk. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much, Ron. It was, it was great to be in your program. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.